Welcome to San Francisco City Insider, the San Francisco Chronicle podcast on the people and politics making headlines in the city by the bay. I'm Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and I'm here today with Rachel Rodriguez, a social worker who also works in the city's conservatorship court, explaining to a judge why some of the city's most severely mentally ill people need additional care. She's here today to talk about a big decision the Board of Supervisors is about to make, whether to opt in to an expanded conservatorship program for people addicted to drugs. I'll be right back with Rachel Rodriguez. I'm Heather Knight, and I'm here with social worker Rachel Rodriguez. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to see you. Thank you, Heather. Um, It seems like being a social worker in San Francisco has got to be one of the hardest jobs there is. Can you talk about why you wanted to become a social worker and how old you were when you knew that you wanted to do this? Yes. um, I knew I wanted to be in the mental health field Mm -hmm. from a very young age. As a teenager growing up in Manhattan, I lived in Midtown, and my mother was somebody that although she didn't work in the field, she took it upon herself to really be the caretaker and the social justice warrior for all of the homeless folks that lived on our street. And this was back in the days in Manhattan where there were a lot of homeless people still on the streets. And so I think I learned that from her. I moved out here at the age of 18 and went to school thinking I would go into psychiatry, Mm -hmm. which was my goal. I became pregnant at the age of 20, my junior year at USF, and decided I needed a more terminal degree where I could still be effectual in the mental health world. Mm -hmm. And social work just became so apparently the right choice. Mm -hmm. And it felt like it probably always was. Yeah. That's great. What part of Manhattan did you grow up in? Uh, 58th and 7th, right Uh uh, across from Petrosian and the park and Carnegie Hall. Grew up um, above an Irish pub that my family owned. Oh, neat. And what kind of um, caretaking would your mom do? So she would bring meals mostly, and she would often put them on silver carts with actual silver and china and make sure that people were eating well. But she'd also bring them to the hospital when they were sick Mm -hmm. or when they had been attacked or Mm -hmm. when they had possibly even been brutalized by police. And she would take it upon herself to bring them over to Roosevelt Hospital about two blocks away from where I grew up and then oversee their follow-up care. Wow. What a nice thing to do. And you wear a few different hats in the social work world here in San Francisco. Can you describe your various jobs and how long you've been doing them? Yeah. um, I started at Golden Gate Regional Center uh, after getting my MSW and then left there in 2011 to go to the VA. I spent just a year at Fort Miley as a social worker before realizing that we essentially have a huge unmet need in San Francisco for representative payee services, Mm -hmm. meaning people who have severe mental illness, addictions, might be homeless, and might have lack of cognitive capacity to manage their own social security need the care of support of somebody to do that on their behalf. So I started a nonprofit with another social worker. And since 2011, we've been serving the needs of people in San Francisco through uh, both the contract with the homeless outreach team, through UCSF citywide, through a variety of clinics. And most of the people we serve have both severe mental illness, substance use disorders, and are currently or formerly homeless. Mm. That's one of the things. (laughs) One of the Jobs. That's one of the jobs I do sort of full-time-ish. And then I work part-time about 20 to 24 hours a week at St. Francis Hospital up on uh, Bush and Hyde mm-hmm. on the locked psych unit. And I've been there since 2007. 
doing social work, but also, more importantly, I think the role that's really brought me here to talk today is that since 2011, I've been conducting the Mental Health Probable Cause court hearings, along with Commissioner Judge Julian Saperstein mm -hmm. and the attorney appointed on behalf of the patient. So my role becomes twice a week to argue in front of the judge as to why this person's mental illness and symptoms, their overall presentation and circumstances, warrants the need for further treatment beyond the 72-hour hold. Mm. And ha you do that twice a week? Yes. So how many um, people are in that in any given time? Oh, yesterday was an interesting day. We had about 10 to 12 folks on the list, and we all wanted to get out early because everybody really wanted to be at Jeff Adachi's memorial. Yeah. And it was so important to the lawyers mm -hmm. that come and represent the patients who learned from Jeff to mm -hmm. also be at City Hall. So we had about a dozen people and got there super early in the morning, and that's a typical day mm -hmm. that we might have a dozen folks that we have to do mental health hearings on. And what percentage does the judge go your way versus the public defenders? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think that uh, it's probably more often my way, mm -hmm. <laughs> not because the folks don't get excellent care uh, and, and representation from the attorneys, uh, but because I think we see that the, there's a mental health crisis in this mm -hmm. city that warrants the need for treatment, even if it's just giving the extra 14 days mm -hmm. or the extra 30 days in the case of a 5270. Let's see what we could do to make this person's life dramatically different, and mm -hmm. let's see how these outcomes can be improved. And of the people that are in that court, what is the kind of behavior that would get them there in the first place generally? It's a danger to self, so a suicide attempt or suicidal ideation, danger to others in which they may have been physically assaultive um, or made threats to, but most often it's grave disability. Mm -hmm. Most often it's the person that due to their severe psychiatric condition, which is often related to schizophrenia, substance use, and or bipolar disorder has resulted in them being unable to meet their own basic needs for mm -hmm. food, clothing, and shelter. We have a patient very recently who we picked up from a bus stop across the street from our hospital who had been covered in urine and feces and unable to make any kind of plan for how to care for himself mm -hmm. and has um, undifferentiated chronic schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And this is somebody who we can't just leave on the streets. They right. have to be brought in and given care. Mm -hmm. And um, without naming names, can you talk about, in addition to the man uh -huh. you just mentioned, but some other memorable clients? Yeah. Um, last summer, I had this guy. He's 35. And he came in, brought in by police. He had been abusing methamphetamine quite heavily. Um, and he was quiet. He was the one in the room who didn't ask for help, didn't want to be bothered, was happy just to have meals brought to him. And when I went to visit him, he was cachectic. He was so underweight, malnourished. Mm -hmm. He was uncomfortable to look at. Mm -hmm. He had scabs on his face. His skin was in terrible condition. His hair was in terrible condition. He had a deformity in his hand, which made it uh, impossible for him to use effectively, which resulted in um, because he had been hit by a car mm -hmm. while running into traffic in a meth-induced psychosis. Here in San Francisco? Yes. And then after that happened, he was disinterested in care. So he didn't seek medical attention. So an issue that could have been addressed through a hand surgery mm -hmm. was not. And now he's permanently left with this disability as mm -hmm. a result. He continually refused care um, despite his mom calling, faxing, a 15-year treatment history of bipolar disorder, psychosis, and meth use, which had resulted in dozens of hospitalizations, jail time, crisis visits, 
and 15 years of homelessness, essentially. She's terrified that he's going to be found dead one day and that there was nothing she could do to stop it. Mm -hmm. And when we're dealing with folks with meth-induced psychosis, I know um, Anton Bland recently was on Forum, and he did an excellent job of speaking about the ways in which this disease presents and then often clears sufficiently where we're forced to let people go, mm-hmm. even if they would very much benefit from further time, as this particular condition can take up to six months to really restore to a person's capacity. Mm-hmm. And I've heard sometimes um, they never fully recover, right? From It could be several months, but yeah. yeah, of course, they could also have done so much brain damage. Just like every episode of psychosis mm-hmm. leads to deleterious effects to the brain, so does every episode of a meth-induced psychosis. Mm-hmm. And So I was really concerned about this patient, the fact that we discharged him with no follow-up, because after keeping him for 14 days, he didn't want any. He just Mm -hmm. wanted to go back to the streets and thought he would be able to make his way and had kind of delusional ideas about his own housing and Mm -hmm. about his own resources. So we let him go. We did an AOT referral with Marin County. We tried to conserve him. Explain what an AOT refers to. AOT, yes, sorry. Assistant Outpatient Treatment, known as Laura's Law, throughout California. Mm -hmm. It's California's um, law that was passed for our our city in 2015, was adopted by the Board of Supervisors to allow us to treat people who might otherwise not engage in care Mm -hmm. through outreach by our assisted outpatient treatment team. And after 30 days of outreach, they might be brought to court order to have a black robe effect from a judge try to compel them into treatment. Okay. And so you tried that on this person? Tried that on this person. It didn't work. Tried conservatorship on this person. It didn't work. Marin County said he's not conservable, literally because of the meth use. Mm. So about a month or two later, I follow up with the mom, and I just want to read a brief quote. Great. Mom says... He's doing terribly. He's up in Nevada County right now. It's snowing. He's sleeping outside. He has no appropriate clothing. He doesn't trust us. He doesn't trust anyone who tries to help him, mainly because he's psychotic, now so damaged cognitively and using more and more meth. He is so fearful and has nowhere to go, and we can't do anything about it. He keeps getting picked up and brought into jail. He isn't a criminal. He hasn't committed any serious or dangerous crimes, never broken and entered, never hurt anyone. He has trespassed, yes, when looking for a space to sleep or sometimes on someone's property. But mainly I think the police pick him up because it's cold, snowing. They know he has nowhere to go. They all know he needs to be in the hospital and in treatment. But he keeps saying no. Says he will get help, but never really does. He has lost the capacity to rationalize effectively, and he really is such a smart guy. Marin, Nevada, Nevada County, everyone is on the same page, and he just won't cooperate. He always cleans up enough, becomes lucid enough to talk through his plans with providers, and is let go. This is such a tragedy. Mm. And that's just kind of one example of what we see on the psychiatric unit every day, every week. I mean, we're getting these calls from desperate families and providers on a very regular basis, Mm -hmm. and our hands are tied. Yeah. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because you support SB 1045 from Senator Scott Weiner, which passed at the state level, and um, San Francisco has not yet decided mm-hmm. whether to opt into it. Um, I know you're a supporter of it. Can you talk about what it would do and what kind of changes it would make? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, pr precisely because of the stories I'm mentioning and experience on the hospital, I felt very compelled to get involved in SB 1045 and went to Supervisor Mandelman and essentially said, how can I help? Mm -hmm. This is a bill that once we adopt it in San Francisco will give us an opportunity to treat people on a more long-term basis who would otherwise refuse care. Mm -hmm. We currently have laws to treat people on conservatorship which I would call more long-term intensive care, if they have a serious mental illness and or alcoholism. We do not have laws right now that allow us to do so when somebody has been using other drugs, other substances, and we see the methamphetamine crisis that we have on our streets today. Mm -hmm. And these are the people that are falling through the cracks. If we do pass SB 1045, we will have an opportunity to kind of sew up that safety net and allow these folks the same care that a person with schizophrenia and alcoholism is also able to access. Because really, in both cases, the treatment needs are the same. Whether a person is suffering from a, a psychosis induced through methamphetamine or a more organic schizophrenia, their treatment needs are the same, mm -hmm. their trajectory is the same, and their outcomes could be the same. Mm -hmm. We can't treat people any longer in a way that discards folks for using drugs. We are a city that wants to see substance use and addiction in a disease model, not a moral failing. Mm -hmm. And yet our system of treatment and our laws have not caught up to that. And we continue to discard people every day out of the hospitals, out of the jails, and out of treatment opportunities because they're using drugs. Right. Um, and you mentioned Supervisor Mandelman. And just to clarify, so he and the mayor are um, introducing the resolution that would um, allow San Francisco to opt into this program since each county has to make its own decision. But some supervisors don't want to because mm -hmm. um, it's been found that it would only help a handful of people every year. And I understand yeah. uh, the Senator Wiener is trying to um, tweak it a bit so that it would help more people. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so Scott Wiener is making a cleanup bill. I think it's SB 40. And that would essentially allow us to catch more people mm -hmm. than we currently think. I know it's been reported it'll be between two to five people, maybe 10 people. Originally, we were thinking 55 to 103 people. So these numbers keep changing. And part of it is because the way that the bill is currently written without this future cleanup says that in order to be eligible for SB 1045, a person would have had to first gone through the AOT, Laura's Law, court order process and be found to that that has not been able to ameliorate the mm. condition. So that's where we're getting these numbers drilled down. But in terms of the numbers, I want to say two things. First, let's refocus on the fact that if we're helping two to five people who desperately need it and are vulnerable and dying on our streets and who are really degrading the community mental health overall, we need to do that. That's the right thing to do. I also take issue with these numbers as they dwindle, and I'll tell you why. They originally stemmed from 5150s that have gone through PES. So we're dealing with statistics from- I gotta keep asking you for these acronyms. Sorry, sorry, Heather. <laughs> uh, psych Emergency Services. Okay. So San Francisco General Hospital does see the bulk of our 5150s, these involuntary mm -hmm. holds. And the way the bill is written says that somebody would have to have eight of these to qualify. Mm -hmm. 
Now, this did not take into account how many 5150s do not go through San Francisco General, but go through the hospital I work at, St. Francis, or CPMC. I didn't realize it had to be only at SF General. Wow. It, that's not the way the bill is written that it has to be, but that's where these numbers were uh, derived I from. See. So when they're making determinations as to who qualifies, those were where they were getting the figures. Mm -hmm. And yet we have to think about CPMC, St. Francis, the VA has a unit, Langley Porter at UCSF, the Jewish Home. Mm -hmm. There are all these units that are generating uh, 5150s in treatment that have to be taken into account. So if we add the total of someone's 5150s across the city, right. it could affect more people. Absolutely. And I think our city's siloed in that we're not sharing that information, and that is one thing that would need to be addressed. Okay. And um, we started talking about this subject maybe a week or two ago after you sent me a letter you had written to two members of the Coalition on Homelessness because you had kind of gotten into it or been offended by what they'd said at a panel on mm -hmm. this subject. Can you describe that night? Yeah. Well, um, about a week prior to that, I had been on a panel that was sponsored by the Eastern Neighborhood Democratic Club held at the Tenderloin Museum in which myself and Supervisor Mandelman as well as Jennifer Friedenbach from the Coalition on Homelessness and Jessica uh, Lehman from the Senior and Disability Action Network mm -hmm. and Kelly Kruger, the Sergeant for the Police Department who is liaison to mental health issues. All of us were on the panel and it was a two-sided panel. And then later I learned that the coalition was holding um, a panel the following week, and I wanted to see what they had to say because I desperately support Jennifer Friedenbach, Prop C, and the Coalition on mm -hmm. Homelessness, and it kills me to think that I'd be on a separate side of this issue than they are. So I wanted to go and keep an open mind and hear what their arguments were. It, it was upsetting to see the flyer for the event to start, which they had an icon of a kind of dog catcher slash grim reaper. Oh, wow. And to kind of... Subtle. Yeah, <laughs> to scare us into thinking that this bill is going to sweep people off the streets and throw them in into institutions. And then sitting through the event, I only found myself becoming more and more angry uh, in terms of the way they described SB 1045, what the treatment will look like, how people will be wrangled up by police, how over-policing will occur, and that they asserted that no mental health professionals agree with SB 1045. And that's wholeheartedly untrue. Because you're one of them. <laughs> I am one of them, and I could give you a list of dozens and hundreds of other people who also support this. Uh -huh. And you sent me a copy of the letter that you had sent them after you were offended by some of the language they used yes. about SB 1045, so I thought I'd read just a couple sentences from that. To portray the proposal in the terms presented tonight was both non-factual and quite offensive, offensive as a social worker and as a human who cringed as I heard this bill compared to fascism, to World War II concentration camps, and to the snake pit, essentially that opponents are unfairly comparing this treatment to. Who will they come for next? This is far too propagandized, dramatized, and fear-based. So first you educated me before we started recording about what the snake pit reference yeah, was. It's, a, it's actually a movie I had to watch when I was in my MSW program at Berkeley. And it shows kind of the state of things in the 1950s, mental health care, in which a husband was able to deem his wife hysterical and check her into an institution. I mean, these are not, this is not the current state of affairs for mental health in our world and certainly not in progressive San Francisco. Right. So um, talk about that language that they were using and... Uh, is there any truth to their fears, or are they only spreading myths? 
to, to me, I feel strongly that most of it was presented that night was was myth based. Um, I would start with this idea that they think there'll be an over policing and that now with SB 1045, police are going to be incentivized to start writing 5150s on homeless individuals. So in terms of the criminalization of poverty, I think that's where the coalition is coming from. And, and they see that. I think they've had examples where they've seen that happen as mental health professionals. Anybody I talk to will tell you it is far harder to get a San Francisco police officer to 5150 somebody than you would think. Yeah, I hear this too because they have to sit at SF General for hours. That is exactly right. Basically babysit them. They do. They have to have two of them often too. And this is not the way police want to spend their time, Mm -hmm. nor should they have to spend Mm -hmm. their time this way. So it is hard to get somebody 5150'd. And it is in no way going to be an unethical rounding up of people based on police having some sort of vendetta against a homeless person. Mm -hmm. So that's one myth, absolutely. Second, that they're going to be swept up and put in institutions. San Francisco is just not rolling that way these days, Mm -hmm. to tell you the truth. We have an innovative conservator's office. We have conservatorships that are in the community. The SB 1045 people will always be first and foremost tried for a community-based conservatorship, Mm -hmm. which means they're living in their own apartments or they're living in stabilization rooms. They have case management, but they have somebody that's helping guide the process and overseeing their treatment needs Mm -hmm. because we cannot forget the fact that folks who have serious mental illness and are using substances regularly do have a lack of insight into the condition and treatment needs, and they do begin to lose the capacity to make that judgment. Mm -hmm. Are you hearing any alternatives presented by um, people who oppose conservatorships? Because um, I haven't really. And it seems when you walk around San Francisco, it's so easy to see people who clearly need help and may not be able to know that they needed and readily accepted. And it seems like we're just letting some people live in their own filth and not eat and just Mm -hmm. sleep under, you know, doorways and not really doing much about it. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think there's been um, any hearty uh, opportunities that I've heard that anybody's proposing different to SB 1045. I've heard things along the lines of, well, we shouldn't do this until we have adequate space in housing, until we have adequate space in hospitals, until we have case managers for everybody and treatment on demand at all levels of care, until we have enough board and cares. To me, we can't prevent a good bill like this that's going to help so many people because we don't have perfect. I don't know that we're going to get to perfect. Mm -hmm. I know we are striving for it, but we can't let an opportunity like this go while waiting for perfection in all levels of city government and the Department of Public Health. That wouldn't be fair. Right. And even if we could somehow do that, which (laughs) at the pace this government moves seems highly unlikely, it would take years. And so what happens to these people in the meantime? I mean, there doesn't seem to be an answer. They deteriorate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you could wave a magic wand and fix the mental health system in San Francisco, California, and the country, what would you do? Oh, it's so scary because sometimes it's so overwhelming that I'm driving home thinking, just move. It's so difficult here. There's so much of a fight. There's so much of an uphill battle. Uh, But the most important thing is... I think we need Prop C. I Mm -hmm. think that would be the first thing I would waive because I think that the funding and the structure and the way Prop C is written would make so much of an impact Mm -hmm. in these folks' lives. After that, we need more beds. We need more beds at all levels of care. Our inpatient psych system is grossly underfunded in terms of bed space. We could use 100 more beds immediately Mm -hmm. in this city, and then we'd be able to stabilize people more fully before they're forced to go back out on the streets. Mm -hmm. 
And I think a lot of San Franciscans, when they walk around the city and see people just behaving really erratically, sometimes in scary ways, especially if you're a woman walking, you know, mm-hmm. in the dark, mm-hmm. it can be really frightening in some parts of the city. Um, if is there something you would teach San Franciscans about mentally ill people? Um, do you think there's any stereotypes that the city has about them? Yeah, I'd say one thing that comes up a lot is people uh, look at the folks on the street and assume they're homeless. Mm-hmm and assume they're not being taken care of, and that's false. Uh, What I see and what a lot of my colleagues see is that the sidewalk has become your front porch in some ways. A lot of these folks are living in SROs and in support service hotels where there's no space outside of maybe a 100-square-foot room that they live in with no bathroom, no kitchen. So they're out on the sidewalk together building community, and I know it doesn't always look so good, Mm -hmm. but I think that's one myth. Not everybody's homeless. And that these folks that you see on the street acting out who are scary, who are scaring themselves, who are very terrified and traumatized, that they can get well Mm -hmm. and that we see the change on Mm -hmm. the psych unit. We see that after a couple of weeks sometimes of care, of them having a safe place, medication, a treatment team behind them, one-to-one meetings, groups, food, clothing, and shelter, Mm -hmm. you know, we're seeing that they improve and are back to the personalities that their family and friends know that they can be. And even just getting a good night's sleep, right? I know that that's extremely hard and can really affect your health. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to subject you to a lightning round, Uh but you said you were up for it. So Okay, (laughs) yes, I'm up for it. We'll get to the fun questions. (laughs) Where where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Okay. Um, El Norteño. It's the burrito truck on Bryant and 6th, right across from the Hall of Justice. And it's definitely the best spot in San Francisco. Oh. But don't go to the wrong truck. There's two. Oh. Go to the one closer. <laughs> <laughs> go to the one closer to 6th Street, parked in the parking lot. Okay. And what's your order there? Uh, it used to be carnitas, but now I have high cholesterol. Aww. So I have to get something like veggie or baked chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and what is your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? Um, easy. I am obsessed with The Wild Parrots of Telegraph Hill. Oh, that's a great movie. Um, that has never come up on this podcast. Really? <laughs> it's a documentary, and I am very much a nonfiction girl, but I love the birds. I love the story that Mark Bittner tells and that Judy Irving, the director, kind of helps craft in the yeah. film. Did you know that they fell in love because of that movie? I did. Yeah, it's very sweet. Um, what was your first concert? Okay, I don't know the year, um, but I know it was the B-52s. Oh. And I know it was in Sheep's Meadow. It was one of those free Central Park concerts. Oh, that's awesome. I was probably 10. Okay, that's also a first for this podcast. (laughs) What was the last book you read? I'm currently reading Season of the Witch for a book club Uh and just finished Michelle's um, Becoming. Oh, I'm awesome with that, too. I love it. She's a great writer. Yeah. And where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a stiff drink? Because I'm sure your job (laughs) sometimes requires that. Oh, yes, it does. Um, Tony Nix in North Beach on Stockton. Nice. And lastly, I know you're a very busy person uh, working many jobs. (laughs) But what is something you always try to squeeze into your busy day? Yoga. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yoga and wine are basically what should be squeezed into every busy day. I saw you recently at a yoga tree class on Stanyan, but you were all the way across the studio. Yeah. I love love yoga tree. I try to practice a few times a week if I can. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Heather. Thanks to Rachel Rodriguez for being on this podcast, to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and to you for listening. 
San Francisco City Insider is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief, and Dominic Fercasa is this podcast's producer. If you like this show, please subscribe and give us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. Support San Francisco City Insider and a lot of great journalism with a print or digital subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.